Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today we're joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Another day in paradise. And uh, this week, Megan and Ben are both off. So you're stuck with us this week. On this week's show, we are going to discuss Bob Trammell's endorsement of Kamala Harris's campaign for president. And then finally this week, it's not quite Saturday in Athens yet, but we're going to take a look at how a new group of progressive local officials is governing that little blue dot in a sea of red. So we'll get to all that this week. But first, we I don't even want to do this, but we need to pause and talk about Trump's tweets from over the weekend. So over the weekend, Trump tweeted at four progressive congresswomen that they needed to go back to where they came from and fix their own governments. The tweets were the tweets were widely condemned as racist by both the public and the media. Uh, but Trump found some defenders, as he typically does in some uh, Republicans in Congress, people like Lindsey Graham, uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, all stuck up for the president or uh, delivered, also delivered their own insults to these congresswomen, which were Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. Um, so before we get to our reactions, Luke, uh, I had somebody I wanted to reach out to and ask for their opinion on this. So I reached out and got on the phone with Nabila Islam. She is a candidate for Congress in the seventh congressional district. She's currently running in that Democratic primary. And I started off by asking Nabila about her reaction to Trump's tweets over the weekend. You know, I was honestly stunned. I couldn't believe it was actually happening. Um, you know, he told four women of color, congresswomen, uh, to go back to their the country where they came from when three out of four of them were born here. And one of them is a naturalized American citizen. Um, I know I thought his comments were unaccess- unacceptable, racist, and, and completely un-American. I was, I was furious that, you know, the leader of this country would even try to suggest that and make you know, people that live here, new Americans and uh, people of color feel like another. Sort of the central point that the president was making in these tweets was he was telling uh, these members to go back to where they came from. Why is this this trope that has been used over and over again, telling people of color to go back where they came from? Why is that trope harmful? Well, it, it suggests that they don't belong in the first place. Right. And it's completely uh, you know, as I said, un-American and racist to use that trope. And just because you have a different ethnicity or you're a person of color doesn't mean that you're not from America. People that live here that are immigrants, new Americans are hardworking people and they do belong here and uh, they should never feel like they are otherwise. Um, so when we talked uh, when we talked about your candidacy originally you you told us a little bit about your immigration background for your family but can you can you tell us a little bit more about that and a little bit about what the opportunity to come to the US has meant to you and your family absolutely you know my parents came to America uh, seeking the American dream right and they knew that they could give me and my little brother and a chance uh, an, an education and a chance to do better. And they did. Um, you know, they worked hard to give uh, my brother and I a shot at the American dream. My parents, with my mother literally breaking her back at a warehouse job to provide for me and uh, for me and my brother to have an opportunity to uh, be successful in this country and to have a daughter who would one day grow up and run for 
you know, Congress to represent uh, this community. Um, immigrants that come to this co country are hardworking and they should never feel like that they do not belong, that they are, you know, made to feel like an other. And I feel like his comments were so hurtful and cruel uh, for, for everyone that lives here. And especially with my district, you know, it's 25% foreign born. It's a majority minority district. And I, I, I was really actually disappointed by our, my own representative, Congressman Rob Woodall's comments, um, or with him voting no on the resolution on condemning uh, Trump's racist comments. And I was, I was very, very, you know, disappointed with him. You know, this, we've elected him to represent this diverse community. And he had a real opportunity um, to really uh, put people over party and, you know, defend this community against his racist comments, but he did not do so. And so I, I think overall, it's telling anyone to go back is incredibly offensive and should never be done. And I myself have been told on the campaign trail uh, to go back to Bangladesh and uh, and fix th that country since I want to fix this country. And so, and and this is something that happens on an everyday basis for many folks and it should not be coming from our president. And is there anything else you wanted to say about these comments before we go? When I'm elected, this community can count on having a leader with a spine and stand up and do the right thing, regardless of the circumstance. All right. Well, Nabila, thanks so much for uh, taking a few minutes to give us uh, your reaction to uh, what the president had to say. Absolutely. No problem. All right. So thank you to Nabila Islam for joining the show for a few minutes to talk about her reaction to these really just like downright racist tweets from the president. Luke, uh, let's go ahead and start here now that we're back together uh, with the two of us. What was your reaction to these tweets? I mean, I'm really not that surprised by anything that's happened. You know, the tweet itself was not surprising. Donald Trump is, has been, and continues to be a racist. So the fact that he's attacked these four congresswomen in a racist way is not really that surprising. And unfortunately, the lack of response from the Republican representatives is, is also not surprising. So I think that just shows how numb we've all become to the president's abnormal and racist behavior. And, you know, so so often we are hearing people don't, you know, say don't normalize Trump, don't normalize Trump. But I think, you know, that's exactly what's happened. I think this happened the third day of his presidency rather than the third year of his presidency. The reaction would have been significantly different. But because... This is just typical behavior of Trump. Uh, the Republicans have grown numb to it. Yeah. So to bring this back to Georgia, I mean, we we started to see reactions come in uh, from our congressional delegation, and and we saw the split between Isaacson and Purdue that has been typical. Um, Isaacson said that Trump's comments were totally inappropriate, and he said that he wasn't elected to make excuses or explain the statements of somebody else. He really didn't have time for, for Trump's nonsense on this. Purdue, the complete opposite. Uh, he said that the assertion that Trump's comments might be racist was outrageous. I um, mean, he actually spent the weekend with, with Trump out on the golf course on the same day that he had, he had sent these tweets out. Um, we also saw another uh, Georgia member of Congress play a pretty crucial role into the reaction of to these statements when Democrats in the U.S. House tried to pass a resolution condemning the statements from the president. Luke, what was Doug Collins' role in all this? Yeah, so Doug Collins was the 
voice on the House floor that was trying to push to get Nancy Pelosi's statements taken down, effectively removed from the record since she, you know, accused the president of making racist statements. And so, you know, the pretty, pretty big Georgia tie to this whole situation with uh, with that. Yeah, and this was the beginning of a real mess on the floor, uh, which I think probably will go mostly unnoticed by people who more casually follow the news. But the reason that Collins was trying to get Pelosi's words stricken from the record is there is precedent within House rules about the decorum for debate and the the this rule that members of the House are not allowed to personally insult the president. And they're um, on Twitter while this was happening, I saw, you know, clips of old little pieces of the rule book that call back to precedents that call back to precedents where members tried to accuse other presidents of being racist. And this is why this little fracas happened. Um, I think eventually what happened was they tried to get the word stricken from the record. And then there was a vote on that and Democrats rejected that motion and then approved the resolution condemning his statements. And so it was kind of a mess just to get uh, the U.S. House of Representatives to call Trump's tweet racist. Yeah, and I think it's also striking that only four Republicans were willing to vote for uh, that resolution because it's kind of unquestionable that the statement was racist. And I, I feel like the fact that these Republicans are so afraid of Trump's Twitter machine and Trump's base that they can't even discourage clearly racially charged messages from the president. And, and it's not like, you know, President Trump made this comment off the cuff one time and he sort of is backpedaled it. If anything, he's doubled and tripled down because I've seen him basically make the same comment on Twitter and in, you know, multiple, uh, you know, pair, you know, back and forth with the press. So it, it's not like this was a misstatement. This is Trump being quite deliberate with this very specific, very racially charged message. And frankly, I just expect more from our delegation, you know, because even Isaacson didn't go as far as calling the statement racist. I think that's pretty much the only thing that should be said about it. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, let's move on to our first topic for the week. Uh, So last Friday, Bob Trammell, the leader of Georgia's House Democratic Caucus, he endorsed Kamala Harris for president. Trammell cited Harris's respect for the rule of law and said that Harris was the perfect candidate to prosecute the case against four more years of Donald Trump. Trammell's only one of a few high-profile Georgia Democrats to back a candidate early in this primary. So let's talk about his endorsement and the outlook for Harris going forward. Um, Luke, were you surprised that Trammell issued this endorsement, and particularly that he issued it so early in the process? I'm not going to lie. I'm honestly surprised anybody has endorsed anybody in this race. It's so early and there's so many people. <laughs> I just feel, you know, even even like if you endorsed like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, I honestly kind of feel like by the time the Georgia primary rolls around in March, they might not even be in the race anymore. <laughs> It's just, oh, it's so early. So, you know, I I think I mentioned this earlier. Like, the only people who I, like, really understand their endorsements are, like, home state Congress people endorsing their governor or their senator. Because, like, no questions asked. Like, they've worked with this person for a long time. They're from the same state. Like, they have a really great relationship with them. So I understand those. But, like, putting aside my uh, 
just confusion <laughs> as why anyone would endorse someone this early. I think this endorsement makes a lot of sense just from like my personal experience with Leaker Trammell and just like watching how he operates. Like the you know he he went to a you know Virginia uh you know law school in Virginia, great law school. He is a lawyer's lawyer. Uh, I really enjoy watching how he operates on the house floor because he's very good at you know handling legal issues. And so on that front, as someone who is in law school, I mean Kamala Harris definitely impresses me on that front. And just like it's very clear that she received very good legal training and she is good at doing the things that lawyers admire. So on that front I feel like this endorsement makes sense, and especially based off of her very strong debate performance, uh, it's not strange to me that this decision was made. So now Trammell has endorsed Harris, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has endorsed Joe Biden. Um, The only other really high-profile Democrat that I can think of is former Senator Max Cleland. He has also backed Biden. And then a couple of more lower-profile figures, Eric Allen endorsed Harris. He's a state representative. And uh, Matthew Wilson, state representative, he endorsed Pete Buttigieg earlier in this race. Do you make anything, though, of the split between Trammell's endorsement of Harris and Biden getting the nod from uh, Mayor Bottoms? Not yet. I think this is going to be a really interesting thing to watch going forward, though, because, you know, Nakima Williams, the state party chair, did not endorse Kamala Harris, but she definitely made it appear that Harris is on her short list. I hope I'm not misrepresenting you, Nakima, if you're listening. Uh, but I think uh, she I think she mostly praised Harris's performance against Biden in the debate, uh, specific to that question of busing that that we talked about before that, that got so much coverage. Right, and criticized Bottoms for endorsing Biden is the way I also interpreted that. Yeah. Um, and sort of, you know, after that exchange, it felt strange for anyone to endorse Biden. Uh, but that that being put aside, I think... I think Georgia is going to be an important state because we're in kind of a special spot because we're one of the few like bigger states that comes after Super Tuesday. So I'm not going to like go out on a limb and say Georgia will be determinative, but like there's going to be like one or two or three, maybe four max campaigns that survive Super Tuesday that are like truly viable. You know, with the small dollar fundraising being the way it is, you could have a candidate, you know, picking up 3% of the vote that runs all the way to the convention. But for people who actually could win, like Georgia's going to be an important contest because if Super Tuesday kind of has a mixed result, then Georgia's going to be a big state for people to grab. And so, you know, if there is a clear divide in like who the state's like politicos are endorsing, I think that'll be a really interesting thing to watch and see how that develops come our primary uh, in March. And so I, I think it's it's definitely worth watching this going forward. Well, and the progression really could be particularly advantageous to Harris because California is now on Super Tuesday. So if, if Harris has a dominating performance in California, and then you know this would assume that she sort of gets off on the right foot by performing well in South Carolina. So if she does well in South Carolina, if she has a dominating performance in her home state in California, and then she turns around and has a really good showing here in Georgia, that really could be a knockout blow for anybody except maybe the, the candidate in second place. And it really could, I think, push this into a two-person race. So it does help her, I think, to to be 
getting some of these higher profile endorsements. She's also uh, a candidate who is actually doing pretty well in the endorsement primary generally. Uh, 538 has this point system for how they they calculate who's winning uh, the most support from their endorsements. And she, under their formula, she has 80 points. She's in second place to Joe Biden's 102 points. And then the next two people in that race in terms of endorsements are people who are definitely overperforming on endorsements relative to their poll numbers. Uh, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar are third and fourth in that race, which I think is indicative of the fact that the you know, three of the top four are senators and, and Biden is a former longtime senator and former vice president. These are some of the people who are most well connected within the party who would be able to secure early endorsements in the process. But prior to 2016, like heading into the 2016 primary, there was a lot of talk about this theory saying that the party decides uh, who is going to be their nominee. Party elites play a particularly big role in signaling to the public and to other party elites about who is the most viable candidate or about who should be receiving the nomination. And then in 2016, that all kind of went to shit because <laughs> Trump came out of nowhere and and won that uh, Republican primary, won that nomination. Do you think, Luke, looking at this big primary field for the Democrats, that the party decides theory and watching how these endorsement points pile up. Is that like a relevant activity at all? Well, for, you know, one important thing to also remember is that there's a strong argument that the party decides model was put to the test in 2016 on the Democratic side. Now, the party won in the sense that they picked the the party was also behind the candidate that received the most votes by a clear large margin. Uh, but I mean, Bernie Sanders still did very well considering how little party support he had. So I think even if we ended up with you know a Republican nominee in 2016 of like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio who had a lot of Republican Party support, I think there would be ample evidence for the party decides being weaker. Now, that being said, this primary gives us an opportunity to really test the theory of if the party decides, because if you look at 538's endorsement tracker, uh, the top four candidates are Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Amy Klobuchar. And while significantly down from them, the next two are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And to me, I think those four candidates are folks that the quote-unquote establishment would like and would feel really comfortable being behind. Whereas Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are two candidates that are doing incredibly well if you look at polling and fundraising and other stats, but the party's a little less comfortable with. And so... I think it's it's really interesting because if someone from that top four group wins, then I think that tells you the party still has a little bit of sway. Uh, whereas if you know Elizabeth Warren or Bernie wins, it it really really would weaken that theory. Now again, I I would circle back around to where we started this conversation and saying it's super early, and I feel like the you know Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders even Mayor Pete. Like, they're the type of people who, if they start doing really well, they win Iowa, they win New Hampshire, you know, they win both or either, like, or even get close. Like, I think they're going to see people start 
endorsing them. And in the way that, like, when Obama won Iowa, a lot of people, including Georgia's own John Lewis, like, switched their endorsement to him. So I, I think with how many people are in this primary, with how uncertain everything is, I will not be shocked if the endorsement landscape changes significantly before this primary is over. So let's bring this back to Georgia, because as expected, Republicans had a reaction to Trammell's endorsement. Republican Party Chair David Schaefer mocked the endorsement and critiqued Harris on immigration. Um, The party emailed supporters of the campaign, and and in the email, Schaefer said, apparently Bob Trammell's respect for the rule of law includes opening up the border to unlimited illegal immigration. Not only do open borders flout the rule of law, they invite even more massive humanitarian crises in the mountains and in the deserts of Mexico. Do you have any concerns that immigration becomes a tough issue for Democrats, or are are you surprised at all that if you know the republicans given an opportunity to to critique harris took this path look republicans are going to run the same ad no matter what like i i imagine the rnc already has the immigration attack ad they want to run the only thing that they are trying to figure out is which grainy black and white picture are they going to put in the ad is it Joe Biden? Is it Kamala Harris? Is it Elizabeth Warren? Like, which one do they have to do? Because it doesn't matter if, you know, if you have Michael Bennett as your nominee who says, I don't want to get rid of private insurance. I want to do a public option. They're going to say that Michael Bennett wants to get rid of private insurance. They're going to say that Michael Bennett wants to, you know, get uh, have open borders. It doesn't matter what the policy positions are. I'm so tired of people saying what are the Republicans are going to do as like a preface for policy debate because it's just bad strategy. It's not smart strategy. And, you know, it's just like I don't feel like Kamala Harris was like the person pushing the open border debate the you know, the, in the, in the biggest way. So like, why are they picking this issue? They're picking this issue because president Trump likes this issue and David Perdue likes this issue. And it's one that, uh, Republicans have campaigned on successfully in the state of Georgia. And I think that's relevant. And I think that's important to think about. And I think Democrats need to do a better job of responding to that, but also pivoting to the issues that actually matter because the, you know, immigration is important. People care about it, but like, does it really affect their day to day? Not really, but for some reason, that seems to be all that we talk about in the sense of like how do we make Americans' lives better? There's not a whole lot of things immigration policy can do on that front. Now, there's a lot of things that we should be doing and are morally obligated to be doing for people who are trying to immigrate to this country and people who are trying to uh, follow the lawful refugee policy. But as far as Democrats, talking to georgia voters like that's we need to stop falling into this trap so one other piece to discuss here is is the context in this endorsement for bob trammell himself we talked a little bit about you know trammell's background as an attorney and and for attorneys and people who care about the law uh harris is an attractive candidate for that reason for not only for the way she handles herself in debate on a debate stage but also the way that she handled the 
uh, confirmation hearings for for Justice Kavanaugh. That was another that was another instance where she really looked like a top level performer under the lights in a in a high pressure political situation, as well uh, as Ford, Bob Barr's uh, confirmation hearing as well. Yeah, but for for Trammell, there's some other context here. He leads a Democratic caucus in the Georgia House that is majority people of color, like vast majority people of color. And he has had challenges in uh, he was in a competitive leadership election when he first became minority leader after Stacey Abrams left the state house. And then he had a challenger uh, when he sought reelection to lead that caucus again after the 2018 elections. Um, and in both instances, he was challenged by somebody who is a former deputy and an ally of Stacey Abrams. And in that most recent challenge, Abrams' allies sought to argue that the reason that House Democrats performed better in the 2018 election, the reason that they picked up seats when they had struggled to do so in the several cycles prior to that, uh, was Stacey Abrams leading the top of the ticket and her ability to to juice turnout to get Democrats to the polls. That that was the argument that they made. They never explicitly tied the fact that Trammell is a white guy to to him running for leadership of that caucus. Um, so we don't we don't want to imply that at all. But what do you think about that context for Trammell's endorsement? Do you think that weighs at all in in how he viewed the candidates that he could choose from? I definitely don't want to speak for Lear Trammell. Uh, I mean, maybe it did, but I I honestly doubt it. Like most of the friction in the caucus is far more tied to sort of whose camp you're in, uh, you know, with with Abrams's groups and other, you know, political leaders in the state and other approaches because, you know, Leader Trammell has been a very different leader than Leader Abrams was. And so, you know, there were some people who were looking for leadership that was far more like what Leader Abrams had done. Uh, you know, Leader Trammell is very focused on, you know, having a different approach. And I think that has a lot more to do with it than uh, any anything else, honestly. Because, you know, again, like, the fact that the caucus is majority minority and you go white dude one <laughs> means that he had majority minority support <laughs> so it's like the you know the both both facts are true at the same time you know like so it, it's it's clear that this wasn't a problem last time since he was able to get their support and i i think honestly it, it probably just has a lot more to do with the quality of kamala harris as a candidate holistically than any internal politics Let's move on to our final topic this week. So last May, athens Clark County held its local elections and sent to the mayor and commission possibly the most progressive local government in the state. New commissioners like Tim Denson, Mariah Parker, Ovita Thornton, they all joined new mayor Kelly Gertz and promised a new era of equity for the city of Athens. They've now been in office since January. So let's talk about how they are governing Athens and what that might tell us about the future of Georgia politics. Now, there's been primarily two big policy pushes out of the mayor and commission since they got elected. The first one is a package of policies that is aimed at alleviating poverty in Athens. I mean, this is a a package that hasn't been fully decided yet, but it's $4 million of funding 
that would make investments in things like skills and job training for people leaving incarceration, funding for childcare vouchers, programs for small and minority business development, and a program for health navigators to help uh, people navigate the healthcare system in a more efficient and effective way. And the proposal also includes a summer youth jobs program. Luke, this is a this is basically an outline that the commission is considering at this point. But this, I think, is probably the most high-profile piece of progressive policy that the commission is debating while they go through their budget process. What do you think of this this package of policies that they're considering, and what difference do you think it would make for for the people of Athens? Well, let me start like with some positive thoughts. Like, it's one great that there's even any idea like that out there at all, because so so much of my frustration as being a former resident of Athens, I'm I'm now a a close neighbor. So, what happens in Athens will definitely affect me. Still, um, you know, my frustration was just everyone was constantly talking about like Athens having a lot of poverty and Athens being, you know, one of the poorest counties in the country and all that kind of stuff. But there wasn't a lot of like urgency to trying to get some of those things done. And now we're, we're seeing pushes in that direction. I think that's a good thing. I think what's, you know, might be surprising to people who watched the election results and saw the progressive, you know, wave that came in is just that it's not bigger and didn't come sooner because you know we're 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 in July <laughs> and they've been in office since you know the beginning of the year and so you know a lot of people I imagine probably expected more would happen but I think the inertia of you know governments <laughs> you know local governments go a lot you know it's a lot stronger force than people really recognize and so I think the fact that we have gotten something like this this early is actually a pretty good sign still because, you know, despite uh, a lot of the progressive groups in Athens being frustrated that more hasn't happened, state governments move slowly and local governments kind of move even slower, I think. And so I think just the fact that this exists at all is a good step and more needs to be done, but hopefully this will build a good foundation to uh, affect change in the Athens area. So I think one other constraint for Athens local government is there hasn't been a lot of progress in a lot of these areas in state government. So one of these planks of this policy is a healthcare navigators program that that is aimed to help people, you know, if they have if they have mental health needs uh, to be able to access a, a pretty complicated and convoluted system of mental health care in our state um, to help them with emergency situations. Um, to follow up with patients to address other healthcare needs. There's just like a lot of sort of like guidance that needs to go into helping people navigate their healthcare. Overall, in this whole package, we're talking about a, a set of policies that cost $4 million. And this health navigators piece is like $600,000. That is actually a relatively small sort of drop in the bucket in terms of addressing broader issues on health disparities in the state. And the biggest policy lever that would help people in Athens and help people all over the state is Medicaid expansion. But 
you know, the city of Athens cannot expand Medicaid for the people of Athens. The state of Georgia has to do that. So I think in a lot of these instances, you have that issue on the healthcare front. You have uh, $300,000 for a child care voucher program. Well, Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor, she ran on expanding access to child care vouchers at the state level. And that would have been much more money than the $300,000 that Athens can put into this. So I think that you know, this has been described in the press and, and among the commissioners as sort of a first effort. It's a first draft that is negotiable in terms of how these resources are distributed. And this is money that may be diverted to this prosperity package as opposed to going to the rainy day fund for the county. So this is definitely sort of a first step. But I think it just illustrates the constraint of local government not being the most supreme government, not being the government with the most resources, um, and the need for the state to step in in some of these other situations and at minimum provide more resources to to address these problems. Yeah, I mean, another you know constraint is a fact that really no other community in the state is experiencing these exact issues. You know, Athens is a bigger city than most of the cities in the state of Georgia, and no other city has had the desperate need that Athens has to address poverty. So I think taking that into consideration, it is impressive that we, you know, Athens is making the steps that it has. And as you just mentioned, this is a first draft, not a final draft, and I'm hoping that we'll see some bolder steps taken in the uh, plan when we actually get to the final draft. So another plank of progressive policy where Athens local government probably has more authority is on the issue of criminal justice reform. Uh, the commission has already successfully eliminated bail on local ordinance violations. So that means that if somebody violates a local ordinance, they would not be jailed and then have the opportunity to pay bail to get out of jail. They would just be given a citation and given a court date and then expected to show up to court, depending on what the violation was. Now, this is still sort of grabbing a low-hanging fruit for the county uh, because most local ordinance violations do not result in jail time for the person committing them already. Uh, But this is now a county policy. And then uh, Mayor Kelly Gertz told Flagpole that the police department was rolling out a cite and release policy for nonviolent misdemeanors such as marijuana possession, and that the mayor was working with the police chief on a citizen's advisory board. Uh, This is a policy that you've seen in other more progressive local jurisdictions where a, a commission of local residents serves in sort of an advisory role to the police department as a way to uh, find avenues to increase community policing policies and to increase the the interaction and understanding between members of the community and the community's police force. The, the one big piece of criminal justice policy that is still TBD for the council is to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana. Uh, this is something, as we talked about when we talked about Ted Terry's campaign, uh, Clarkston has decriminalized marijuana. Atlanta has also decriminalized marijuana possession, and I believe Statesboro even has too. Um, so this this is something that appears to be within the realm of the power of, of county governments. Given this slate of criminal justice policies, Luke, what, what difference do you think policies like these are going to make? 
it's definitely going to make a difference. There's more that can be done. And, but, you know, this is, again, a place where the nature of state government is that they are somewhat limited. They can't unilaterally legalize marijuana. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that the state prevents them from doing. But, you know, that being said, making the, you know, the crimes they do have control over, you know, reducing the fines for them, you know, may, getting rid of cash bail for them where they can, I, it'll make a differ- a big difference. And trying to focus on... The other side of this as well is the, you know, massive amount of mental health issues, I think, is another area where people underestimate how much of a difference it could make because, um, you know, some of the research that Advantage Behavioral Health System has done, which is a local nonprofit in Athens, is that 40% of the jail inmates have been diagnosed with a mental illness. And so, you know, the until really the, you know, recent turnover at the commission this was an issue i don't feel like people were talking about as much and really focusing on and i think there's a lot more that could be done there as well intriguing you know some encounters that a lot of places would interpret as a criminal issue uh more as a mental health issue and try to get people treatment uh that need help rather than incarcerating people which will only make their mental health systems worse and these are core tenets of a a movement for criminal justice reform that is going on primarily in very liberal and progressive places in this country. Um, Another key role in implementing criminal justice reform is uh, the position of prosecutors. And uh, Deborah Gonzalez, who was a state representative for a part of Athens. She was representing District 117, which which makes up kind of the west side of Athens and, and goes out towards Oconee County. She is now running for district attorney in that area, um, and we'll we'll hopefully be able to talk more about her campaign in the future. But from the little bit that I've seen, she is running as a progressive and a reform-minded prosecutor. I think when you look at the policies that a commission can implement, and then the policies within the authority of prosecution that a prosecutor could adopt for that office, you can really sort of change the mindset of the entire criminal justice system within a local area, obviously within the constraints of what state law allows, but um, particularly when you have reform-minded individuals who are implementing those policies, it it obviously sort of gets to give these policies a test run. And I think the biggest thing that the advocates of reform are going to have to overcome is this argument that these sort of quote-unquote softer on crime policies are going to lead to increased rates of crime. Um, you see this all the way from marijuana decriminalization to some of the prosecution policies that prosecutors have adopted. The you know, Conservatives and hawks on criminal justice are going to argue that crime is going to increase. But when you put these policies out into the world in a community and you see that crime rates don't spike in communities that have adopted these. I mean, you have several states that have, for instance, legalized recreational marijuana, and you haven't seen corresponding spikes in crime related to that specific policy. I think that is sort of the beginning of developing the movement to impact more conservative places, to impact a more conservative state government that we have um, in showing that those policies bring results and they don't bring all the bad downsides that that critics levy. Um, and so I think that when you're looking at the role that 
local government can play, particularly in a in a progressive city like Athens, that's what you're looking for is sort of a test run of some of these policies to alleviate poverty and make the criminal justice system a little less punitive. So, you know, in addition to the policies that we've talked about, you know, politics plays a role here too. We currently have a Georgia Senate race that has two mayors in it, uh, Teresa Tomlinson and Ted Terry. And we have a presidential race that also has two mayors in it, uh, Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana, and Wayne Messam from uh, down in Florida. He's a mayor of a town down in Florida. Do When you're looking at these policies and the figures that have sort of been elected in this progressive wave for the Athens-Clark County mayor and commission, does either the foundation that these policies create or any of the particular individuals who are pushing them forward, do you see, you know, a potential future star politically out of that group? Not yet. I mean, there's, I guess, I guess what it is, is like, I don't see how or who would want to go higher. You know, I think it's because, you know, Kelly Gertz, Athens mayor and all of our commissioners, they all were pretty focused on issues that, like, were very specific to the Athens community. Now, obviously, you could argue that that was just them being good campaigners and good candidates, and they focused, you know, their ambition on problems they saw in front of them and that mattered to their voters and that they could easily translate to other issues. But, I mean, I think... And maybe this is my naivety showing, but like I think I sincerely believe like all these folks that got elected are very focused in Athens on the you know in the short term, and that you know I could not see any of them running for a different office until like eight years from now. And you know their can you know their 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 timing office is is real real small. Um, but I, I I think there's definitely a future mayor in that group. Um, and as far as ambition goes, you know, it's like Russell Edwards is a commissioner now, and he had ran for Congress previously against Paul Brown in a 2014, no, 2012, I think it was. Um, you know, Tim Denson ran for mayor before. Uh, Mariah Parker has been getting a lot of attention, and she's someone who a lot of people are very interested in. So, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be one of those situations that we have to see how the 2020 elections go. We have to see, you know, does a Democrat win a Senate race? Do, you know, Democrats pick up the House or pick up seats in that state house? And, you know, what does Georgia look like after redistricting? Because it's all about timing. And it's all about, you know, being in the right place and having the right person at the right time. And the Georgia that we have right now, I don't think any of these candidates are would be right for running for higher office but you know georgia five six eight years from now maybe maybe they are maybe they're perfect for it and i think like before any of them would run statewide they'd probably run for congress or state house or state senate uh and i think they could be very powerful candidates for any of those offices uh despite them being slogs uh electorally yeah i think you know the other thing i think at play here is stacy abrams ran for governor as the most progressive candidate since the Republican takeover of the state house. Um, you know, prior to that, we had two Democrats who were described as more centrist. We talked a little bit about Michelle Nunn in immigration debates, tying herself to people like John McCain and uh, Marco Rubio. Stacey Abrams 
ran in the closest governor's race since the 60s. If you look forward to the Senate race and you look forward to races going forward, if the Democratic Party starts to really prioritize progressive policymaking, a progressive record, then that's where I think the ground, the electoral ground becomes more fertile for people coming out of this commission. Because, you know, the the first thing that Ted Terry said when he jumped into the Senate race was he has a progressive record on a $15 minimum wage, on decriminalization of marijuana, on uh, environmental issues and, and renewable energy issues. And there's not a ton of places in Georgia where you can get a record like that. I mean, there just aren't that many super progressive local governments where people could build that credibility. And Athens, I think, is a, is a place that you can do that. And they have an activist space within the community that looks to hold local progressive candidates accountable. Um, they have this group, Athens for Everyone, that was formed uh, out of Tim Denson's defeat in the 2014 mayor's race. Uh, his campaign transformed in this Athens for Everyone group. And on their platform, you see the commission addressing a lot of these issues this year. You see this equity package targeted poverty. You see efforts to decriminalize marijuana, even though they haven't gotten to that yet. Um, Tim Denson, if if you didn't listen to our interview with Tim Denson last year, I would I would get in the archives and I would look that one up. He talked a lot to us about fare-free buses and his vision for a transportation system that is open to everyone in the Athens community. They haven't gotten to that part yet, but they've recently allowed seniors and people with disabilities to ride the entire system for free. Um, and I believe Athens Clark County employees also ride the system for free. I'm pretty sure that's right. So. You know, so I I think that there is sort of the right mix of a progressive vision and groups that would hold local officials accountable to create strong records. And then if the state party and and voters in primaries across the state start prioritizing progressive records like these, then I do think that the the pull to statewide elections, to running for Congress, to running for state house and being like a prominent member of the state house, I, I think that will be stronger. Um, and certainly I think there's people, I don't know, I admire Tim a lot. I, I think he is somebody who has a very clear vision about progressive policies and why they're important to people. And I think that that would play well on the campaign trail. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, are there voters out there who want that? Yeah. And I think it's going to be very interesting because, you know, even if you're a hardcore Republican, and even if Georgia stays a pretty red state, the, you know, the Democratic Party is changing. And I think, you know, people like Tim, people like Mariah Parker, I think they are people who could end up being candidates for higher office. And I, I honestly think that would be inconceivable, you know, four years ago even. You know, <laughs> like when the only type of person we thought could win was Jason Carter. And then, you know, four years later, we nominate Stacey Abrams and she almost wins. And you, uh, and many people have argued and should argue that maybe, you know, she would have won if there wasn't, um, you know, voter suppression in the state like we have. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the party's changing. And I, it's going to be very interesting to watch for anyone who cares about Georgia politics. And so I, I'm excited to watch that and see how that change unfolds and see the fights that um, happen because, you know, uh, people like Tim and Mariah started out, you know, four short years ago 
in a sense feeling like they are outside the Democratic Party. Uh, but in, you know, that short amount of time, you know, like, Tim is an officer of the Clark County Democrats. So it's like they've definitely merged with the party. I wouldn't say take over because a lot of the people that were there before they were there are still there and they're uh, cohabitating a, a party very successfully. And I think very happily. And, you know, every once in a while there's some flare ups, but I mean, for the most part, uh, the you know the local county party works really well together with these more firebrand people. And so I think Athens has served as a model if the Democratic Party wants to move in a more progressive direction, even if in just style, because policy-wise, I kind of feel like we're already there, but stylistically, they're they're very different, and I think uh, it doesn't have to be contentious. I think Athens is a great model, uh, if successful or not, of how the party could meld these elements that, uh, in a way that you know keeps it from tearing itself apart i think i think that's going to be very valuable for the party going forward all right well i think that's a good place to leave it for the week um so luke thanks for uh coming back to athens with me i love to visit <laughs> my my favorite uh college town yeah i wish we were actually there and not far away from it but we will well, leave I'm, it there. i'm only 20 minutes away <laughs> anyways we are going to leave it there and we will talk to you all next week bye guys that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of peach pod next week until then take care y'all